Welcome to Pop Culture Happy Hour, NPR's roundtable podcast about what we're watching, reading, and listening to. I'm Linda Holmes. I'm the editor of NPR's pop culture and entertainment blog, Monkey See. This week, we've got two movies on tap. First, we'll venture to another galaxy for Rogue One, a Star Wars story. Then we'll tackle the very colorful and very musical La La Land. And as always, we'll close the show with what's making us happy this week. So stick around. This holiday, visit the NPR Shop, featuring an array of gifts for the public radio moms, dads, teenagers, and kids on your list. The holidays get nerdy at shop.npr.org. Before we get started here in historic Studio 44, let's go around the table. Stephen Thompson, what do you do at NPR? I am a writer and editor with NPR Music. And Glenn Weldon, what do you do at NPR? I write about books, comics, and other stuff for the NPR website. And with us this week in our fourth chair is our pal Daoud Tyler. Amin Daoud, what do you do at NPR? I, too, am a writer and editor for that self-same NPR Music. (laughs) I know, right? We have re-entered the world of Star Wars this week with Rogue One, a Star Wars story. Now, the first thing you should know is that unlike last year's Star Wars The Force Awakens, which takes place years after the events of Return of the Jedi, Rogue One is a story that nestles into the space between events that took place in the so-called prequels and the events that take place in the original Star Wars. So specifically, this is the story of how the Rebel Alliance obtained the plans for the Death Star that later allowed it to be, let's say, attacked, perhaps, in a famous film you may have seen. Now, figuring in this story are a young woman named Jin Erso, played by Felicity Jones, a rebel pilot named Cassian Andor, played by Diego Luna, and an imperial pilot played by Riz Ahmed. Also in the film, Mads Mikkelsen, Donnie Yen, Forrest Whitaker, Jimmy Smits, Wen Jang, Ben Mendelsohn, and Alan Tudyk as the robot sidekick Mm -hmm. voice of. The director is Gareth Edwards, whom you might remember from the 2014 Godzilla. And the screenplay was written by Chris Weitz and Tony Gilroy. I'm going to go first to Stephen Thompson. What did you think of this Star Wars? This film is constructed around trying to explain how an engineering flaw was placed in the Death Star in a way that uh, was very important in, in, in a key scene in a Star Wars movie. And I'm sitting there, I'm I'm looking at that story, like, how did that engineering flaw get there? And it occurred to me, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. I was flummoxed by this movie. I don't, I understand why it exists, but storytelling wise, I did not understand why this movie exists. And I feel like there's all this excitement about this movie. This movie seems to be being fairly well received and I'm sitting here like I did during like Batman the, the Dark Knight Rises of just sitting there with my arms folded like I, I didn't like I just didn't like it I didn't care mm-hmm. hmm didn't care. <laughs> Didn't care. <laughs> the Stephen Thompson story. <laughs> Glenn, what did you think? I'd see, I, I disagree slightly. I think it delivered on its promises as long as you recognize that those promises are comparatively modest. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of Easter eggs for hardcore fans, or I think we should call them blue milks. There's a lot of blue milks in this film. What? what? People who know, know. Okay, um, okay. I, I assume when you're talking about blue that. milk, you're talking about the color palette of this movie? No, no, no. It is no, the no, actual movie ever. It's a thing from the first movie from Star Wars, okay. uh, New Hope. It, okay. Luke drinks blue milk, and there's oh, blue milk and other things that are like blue milk that will remind you I of see. the original trilogy. Gotcha. Uh, very much. And, uh, you know, it's there's no opening crawl. It, they go out of their way to remind you that this isn't the main saga. Everything seems smaller. The scale seems, the stakes seem, in many cases, small when they shouldn't, but they still do. It reminds me very much, I don't think anybody in this room has ever seen the animated series Star Wars Rebels. 
No. Okay. It felt like an episode of television. It felt smaller, especially the first half. There is a formula to a Star Wars film. Uh, I'm going to say it's uh, about one-third spaceships and explosions, one-third narrow escapes like uh, movie serials, and one-third complete mumbo-jumbo about (laughs) Jedi and Siths and lightsabers and literal hand-waving. You know, these are not the droids you're looking for. And I am there for uh, the mumbo-jumbo. I love the mumbo-jumbo. I love the wizards and the the Jedis and that that whole thing about uh, there's this force that connects us, blah, blah, blah. As soon as we get into these spaceships and explosions, which is what most of this film is, I'm going to say it's 80-10-10 in terms of that. It's 80% spaceships and explosions, 10% narrow escapes, 10% mumbo-jumbo. It's less involving for me. I just don't connect as emotionally. I will say that there is a character, uh, a CGI character in this movie, which, uh, you know, if you watched the film Ratatouille, and you like that actor who played Anton Ego, that CGI <laughs> actor who played Anton Ego, and you thought, what has he been doing lately? Yeah. He is here in a vengeance. Uh-huh. Uh, it is amazing how you see something like Moana, and you see how they deal with water, and you think, well, we have crossed the Uncanny Valley now. Uh-huh. Right. We have not. I mean, <laughs> it's an uncanny creek. Those scenes with this CGI character feel like a cutscene from Mass Effect. It just feels so fake and it's not how they look it's how they move yeah. how the human face moves is still not something we can we can capture I, I think we should warn people that there is a scene in the trailer uh, from the climax of the film which is not in the final film because there have been a lot of reshoots for various reasons mm-hmm. there's a lot of ADR dialogue that you can kind of hear where they're trying to patch over corrections that they've made reshoots right. that they've made but at the end of the day Linda Holmes there is a kind of movie in which when one character wants to make another character follow them they don't say follow me they say come <laughs> and when they want another character to leave, they don't say leave or see ya. They say go. Or better yet, go now. <laughs> and nine times out of ten, I am largely a sucker for these kind of films. Yeah. And uh, this is that kind of film. Yeah. So again, modest expectations, modest delivery, sure. modestly good. Yeah. How about you, Doug? What do you think? I had three different experiences of this movie. Maybe the first like 20 minutes was like, Oh, there's a lot of names. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a lot of new names to remember. And maybe, I, I don't know, maybe that's what it was like to see Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope in 1977. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't have the luxury, like, you know, by the time you we see... We just called it Star Wars then. Well, that's the thing, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like the Simpsons in Brazil. They just, we just called them nuts here. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, you know, for people of a certain generation and onward, like, your entire life and the entirety of culture is so infused with Star Wars references by the time you finally see Star Wars that it's just like, well, okay, I know what that is. Yeah. I know what a Star Destroyer is, and I shouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> and then... I would say for the next hour or so, I found it really promising. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of jokes, and they didn't feel like Star Wars jokes. They felt like actual, like, funny jokes. Mm-hmm. Like, some degree of, like, punch-up had actually worked for them here. We'll come back to Alan Tudyk's robot, but that's got to be, like, a you know, a top three thing about this movie. Absolutely, and also the easiest character to punch up, right? Like, mm-hmm. you can plug whatever line you want into right. that robot's mouth mm-hmm. after the fact. Okay, that guys, can we start the funniest character. Can we start saying droid, please? <laughs> Just sorry. do me a favor. <laughs> do me that favor. That's all right. That's right. That is the preferred oh, nomenclature. Boy. This is how you know that my opinions on this movie are not to be trusted. <laughs> I've, oh, I've, I've seen the Star Wars movies but I don't have the lingo. Yeah. I agree with you, Glenn, that once people start getting in spaceships and blowing stuff up, that you get a little bit of seen this before. Though it mm. does look very good. Yeah. Actually, you know what this makes me think of? I wonder if this entire movie was pitched on the idea of a style mulligan. Because, hmm. and follow me here, 
I don't think it's controversial to say that the prequel trilogy is like pretty ugly mm-hmm. in many ways. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. One of the really galling things for people who cared was that like by the time you get to episode three, I suppose, there's a weird style jump where like the way that things look in those movies doesn't really jibe with the way that they look in the original trilogy. And there's this final scene where they're standing and like watching the Death Star being built. And it's like, hey, why does your technology look worse? Yeah. <laughs> and this seems to be an attempt to kind of bridge the gap. We see some like OG stormtrooper uniforms early yeah. in this film mm-hmm. where it seems like, you know, it's a touch like, you know, like the old like yellow and black license plates in California. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just like something like that. Like that, the old timey baseball uniforms. Yeah, or, yeah. yeah. Where I was just like, there's a shot um, early on that sort of descends into an urban alleyway and you've got the lots of lights and beveled corners, um, but everything <laughs> is kind of dirty in the way that it would be mm-hmm. um, in the original trilogy. And that I kind of respect. Like, if that's the reason for this movie to exist is to just be like, hey, this is what really happened in between that story and this story, yeah. then I, you know, I feel a little better about that. Yeah. I really love the original trilogy. I I'm not even sure I saw all the prequels. I know I saw the first one. I don't think I ever saw the other two, which I admitted to when I saw Force Awakens. I'm the kind of semi-involved person. I really, really loved uh, Force Awakens, as you might recall if you listened to this show. I really, really loved it. And I went into this really excited because I so enjoyed getting a Star Wars movie at the end of last year. And I so enjoyed how kind of buoyant it was and how much fun it was. I considered that to be a really, really fun movie, despite the fact that like all Star Wars movies, it has kind of heavy story elements that involve loss and sacrifice and things like that. And dads. And dads. (laughs) But this movie to me felt more, if you think of there being like DC style superhero movies and Marvel style superhero oh, movies. Oh, I love this analogy. For me, Force Awakens felt more marvel yeah. This feels more DC. Mm-hmm. It feels more dark. It feels more sad. It feels more kind of heavy with portent all the time. Insisting yeah. upon it. When I saw this movie and reacted to it, I didn't know who had directed it and written it. I didn't remember. There's been, there have been, there are so many directors. Mm-hmm. I was like, is this the Ryan Johnson one? Is this the, remind me what's going So I just sort of watched the movie without that expectation. And when I came out of the movie, oh, Gareth Edwards, who did the 2014 Godzilla that I didn't like, partly because it was so heavy and serious. And I felt like it's a Godzilla movie. It should be fun. And it wasn't enough fun. Right. And Tony Gilroy... Chris White's is a little weird because he wrote about a boy and some Mm -hmm. other stuff and has a a really interesting kind of upsy-downsy resume. But this, to me, feels like a Tony Gilroy movie. And he wrote Michael Clayton and wrote uh, The State of Play, uh, American version, and a bunch of the Bourne movies. And so... This feels like that to me. It feels like a heavy thriller in a lot of ways. And I was interested to hear Daoud say that he felt like the middle part had a lot of jokes because I felt like it was very short of jokes. I think other than the droid and and a couple of stray jokes, a couple of which I admit are, I agree, are really good. But I felt like it was quite short of jokes and short of fun. And I agree with you Glenn, that it's very long on the gunfights and explosions and very short on what I referred to with you as kind of getting out of scrapes, which is that that (laughs) narrow escapes part that you like, the kind of the trash compactor, but also the uh, Force Awakens bit with with Daisy Ridley and John Boyega, like running through the hallways and, you know, you sort of skid to a stop over here and then you run the other way. I wanted more of that. 
I really was grateful that they have a guy who comes in, um, Donnie Yen, who who plays a character in this movie, is a real martial arts star. I really enjoyed like the mm-hmm. the fact that there's like a martial arts fight. There's in the one movie. solid there, there's fight a scene really with good, like a wide angle, so you yeah. can really see it. There's like a really terrific and well shot martial arts bit, but. He's a blind mystic, sort yeah. of, and I felt like, uh, yeah. I also like, <laughs> did not know that character's name by the end of the movie. Right. No, I didn't yeah, either. I and I and I think there are parts of that. You know, Glenn responded responds to the stuff that's what he calls the mumbo jumbo, which is the stuff about the force. And this is very much mm-hmm. the character who carries the most overt versions of that. And it was kind of like, you know, that character to me is a mix of stereotype and good execution. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel weird about it. On balance, for me, I enjoyed it. I like being in this universe. I think there's an incredibly high degree of difficulty just understanding what the Star Wars universe should feel like. And I think for the most part, they get that. For me, the tip of kind of super heavy to those leavening elements is not right for me. This is the kind of movie where I'm very aware of the difference between your taste and your critical eye sure. in the sense that I think this movie is good at what it's doing. I just wasn't that crazy about what it was doing. That seems m- fair. Me personally. Yeah. I would rather see a f- more fun Star Wars movie. Yeah, I mean, I'm reading some reaction online already about its Byzantine plot and how it's all very, there's a lot of machinations. And I agree and yet I don't agree because uh, maybe in the beginning, once we get to the climactic locale, and they need to do X so that somebody else can do Y so mm-hmm. that Z can happen. We are told X, Y, and Z over and over yeah. and over and over again so that if you don't get it, that's on you. I mean, Yeah, uh, and I think, I think in Star Wars movies in general, I recognize that I spend a lot of time listening to sort of this, like, oh, yeah, okay, blah, 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 right? And I, <laughs> and I don't, I couldn't explain to you even having seen it many times, I would forget pieces if I tried to explain the plot of the original Star Wars as well in terms of who's where at what time and who does what to who and what base people are. I don't. I will never master all of that. What carries those movies for me is your, the characters that you're watching. Yeah. And I do think one of the issues with Rogue One is that the particularly, I think Felicity Jones is Jin. I think that's that's okay. I don't know that she's that different from Ray. It feels yeah. a little bit like a retread of that character. But there's not enough Riz Ahmed in this movie for me. Uh-huh. I think he's really the he's very charismatic, and there's not a lot of him. Yeah, I wish he had more to do. And yeah. I would have swapped much more of him out for much less of the Diego Luna character, who mm-hmm. didn't work for me at all. I didn't think he was interesting. I didn't think he was well developed. I didn't necessarily think the the performance was great. I felt really ambivalent about that character and you spend a lot of time with him. Yeah. And there's sort of a you spend a lot of this movie thinking, are they trying to do a chemistry thing with the two of them? That sort of came at one point out of nowhere for me and I thought, no. Yeah. <laughs> no, if, not if you, I don't see it. If you have to ask if they're trying to do a chemistry thing, it's they're not, not working. They're not very doing well, it well. Right. And I, I had the same reaction. Well the question is what is this movie here to do, right? I mean we were told from the outset, I guess, that this is a standalone story that yeah. doesn't really intersect except in certain plot elements yeah. with the rest of the series, yeah. um, which is 
fine. Mm-hmm. It basically, I mean, it, it toys with you a little bit because you want to like these characters, like, mm-hmm. and you want to be invested. And when people talk about mysterious yeah. happenings in their past, you you think to yourself, like, oh, maybe I'll get to know a little bit more about yeah. that. And I don't. I mean, we can't talk about the end of this movie, but I, I definitely had a moment where I was like, wait, that's it. Yeah. Well, and <laughs> and the other thing, I freely admit, I think one of the reasons why there is a heaviness and a darkness to this story, it's it's sort of not their fault because the end of this movie has to set up the kind of desperate circumstances that open Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this movie kind of has to end on a little bit of a hopeless note because Star Wars A New Hope <laughs> is New Hope. Yep. So it's sort of, it, 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 it's not really their fault. I think I just like... I am also a person who doesn't respond as much as other people do to Empire Strikes Back relatives to Star Wars because Empire Strikes Back is heavier. It's sadder. Right. It has more kind of heavy emotional content. I like the more kind of uh, swashbuckling, ca- swashbuckling, the kind of caper feeling of a lot of, of the first Star Wars movie. Empire is I admire it. I respect it. But it's heavier. And I think of it as sadder. And so that's not really this movie's fault. I think it's just at a different place in this gigantic story. And when you tell a chapter that has to set up something that's called a new hope, you're probably not going to have me on your team as much as when you're in the New Hope part. You make a good point. I mean, this movie follows immediately in the wake of The Force Awakens. And if you remember when we talked about The Force Awakens, we were talking about the chemistry between John Boyega and Oscar Isaac. Oh boy, yeah. You know, we were talking about Daisy Ridley is just this force of nature. This can't help to me but compare unfavorably to that. I I have a feeling that many of you who listen to this episode (laughs) will eventually see Rogue One, A Star Wars Story. Please tell us what you think. Come and find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH or tweet at us at PCHH and tell us what you think of the movie. When we come back, oh, it's still movies. We're still doing movies. It's that season of the year. We're going to talk about La La Land. So come right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Sock Club delivering a wonderful gift experience. Quality American-made socks are sent straight to your loved one's door, featuring different designs and a personal note every month. From now until December 25th, Pop Culture Happy Hour listeners can get 15% off gift subscriptions with promo code CULTURE at SockClub.com. Give Sock Club this holiday season. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. Now, as we said, it's the time of year when we spend a lot of time at the movies, so we're staying there this week to talk about La La Land, the splashy new musical written and directed by Damien Chazelle, who most recently made Whiplash, but who before that had made a musical called Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench in 2009. La La Land is mostly a showcase for Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone, though you'll also see Rosemary DeWitt, J.K. Simmons, John Legend, and some other folks. The music is by Justin Hurwitz, who also worked with Chazelle on his other two features. And the lyrics are by Benj Pasek and Justin Paul, who have written a bunch of theatrical stuff themselves, including Dear Evan Hansen, which just opened on Broadway and is sort of the uh, the current hot Broadway thing. The movie is about essentially Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone play. He's a piano player. She is a, an aspiring actress. And it's about their kind of trying to get their careers on track and, you know, how will success and failure affect them as they fall in love and later try to have this relationship. This movie is kind of right up my particular alley, as I talked about when I saw it in Toronto. So I'm curious to get into what you three not necessarily 
old movie musical <laughs> fiends thought of it. Can I start with you, Glenn? Sure. Liked, didn't love. B from me. Does it make me a rank and errant churl to suggest <laughs> that there's just not enough songs? There's so much score. There's not enough what Bob Mandela would call numbers. And it seems to me oddly... because they're called numbers, by yeah, the way, okay. but go ahead. Um, How dare he? So here's the outline, right? So we start out with a hugely up-tempo, high-energy number, Another Day of Sun, which is just so much fun. And it makes a promise that I don't think the film ultimately delivers on. Then it's followed up immediately by uh, this song called Someone in the Crowd, which... When it starts off, I thought, okay, this is this is a book number, not a breakaway pop hit, that's going to get them to a party. So in this number, Emma Stone and her three roommates are headed to a party in the Hollywood Hills, and it's going along fine. And then something happens. They are walking four abreast down a street in their monochrome party dresses, mm-hmm. well, primary colored mm-hmm. primary dresses, and as... They start walking in line. This number, which has been going on for a while, all of a sudden, the melody and the beat come together. Exactly. Let's hear a little bit of it. I should mention that as they're walking, when that beat kicks in, they do a little kick behind them. I don't know what it's called. It's some kind of thing where they just do a little kick and then another little kick. And that's the moment where I got the gay musical goosebumps that I was hoping for. (laughs) (laughs) That happens nowhere else in this movie. Absolutely nowhere else. And I don't exactly know why. Now, Whiplash was made by, uh, I think it's fair to say, a jazz bro. Not a jazz nerd, but a jazz bro. The kind of guy who you would go on one date with him and... Five minutes into the first rank, he'd be talking about Thelonious Monk and Coltrane. Five minutes in. Which a character does in that movie. Well, that's what I think is smart here. So instead of having it made by a jazz bro, he makes the main character, Ryan Gosling, into that kind of jazz bro. So he's owning it in a way that I think is very smart. The funny thing about it is when it's the relationship between the guy and the girl, and this happened in Whiplash 2, that scene between Miles Teller and Melissa Benoist in Whiplash, we're at the concession stand. That is so natural. And when these two, when Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone are just talking and being together, it is completely natural. And and, and when they argue, it feels like a real argument. But I couldn't get into this in a way, it went from being a B minus to me to a B in those last five minutes, which we might talk about a little, but we shouldn't spoil too much sure. because those last five minutes are so smart and they recover a lot of what I just wasn't emotionally connecting to in this film. It's such a smart way of talking about relationships that I just, again, liked, didn't love. Yeah. How about you, Dan? What do you think? You know, I had two biases going into this movie. One was that I, I didn't love Whiplash. I, I had a friend who compared it recently. He said it was basically a sports movie. In the guise of a music movie. Oh, yeah. yeah. Which I think is fair to say. Absolutely true. The other thing is that I've never been really moved by the romance of Hollywood as a born and bred New Yorker. Oh, yeah. But I realized, you know, going into this, that, like, this movie doesn't really take place in Los Angeles. Like, it takes place in Hollywood and not the geographical Hollywood, but the concept. Yes, Yes. So you get things like... Emma Stone's apartment is filled with posters for classic Hollywood movies. She works on the Warner Brothers backlot. She sure does. Um, and there are moments where they're strolling around and seeing movies being filmed. And I half expected a guy in like a Corinthian helmet and a shield <laughs> to walk <laughs> into the frame. Or like, a guy in like Jodhpur's and a, with a megaphone. Yep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, era is constantly being toyed with here. Every time I saw a cell phone or a laptop, I was like, oh, right. Right. Now, once it was clear to me that this wasn't like an L.A. movie necessarily, Mm -hmm. but kind of a little bit more of a a movie about Hollywood and people's 
preconceptions of what it is like, the world that people want to live in when they move to Hollywood to mm-hmm. become, you know, an actor or a performer, you know, like any anything like that. Yeah. That that is that's a lot more interesting to me. Interesting. How about you, Thompson? The chasm between what I loved in this movie and what I didn't love in this movie, I needed to pole vault over it, like to get to the best stuff. The stuff I didn't like made me crazy. So you have these beautiful, lavish, technicolor dance numbers that are so vibrant and lovely. And you have that ending that Glenn referenced that I was completely smitten with. And in order to get from one to the other, you have to pole vault over a love story that has its its really nicely acted moments, but also a lot of Ryan Gosling whining about jazz. <laughs> yeah. For me, this movie felt about a half an hour too long. All the parts I would have cut out are like the stuff where he goes on tour with John Legend, and I just didn't care. Your apathy may be the I know, problem. I know, and I, and I, I, hate, I hate having to say I didn't care twice in the same episode about two movies I really wanted to love, but it was frustrating. And I think that, that this movie plays around, I think, a lot with the juxtaposition between the fantastical and the mundane, that the story of these characters and their pursuit of you know stardom in her case and uh, authenticity, I guess, in his, is set against you know, these fantastical dance numbers where occasionally they're literally floating and you have all these tributes to Gene Kelly movies and tributes to the Umbrellas of Cherbourg and, you know, there's so much, there's so many references to classic filmmaking in this in this movie and I, it's interesting, like, I went into it, I don't think of myself as a musicals guy, but I came out of it like, I wanted that to be a complete musical. Like, I almost wanted, like, all the dialogue to be musical and to really lean into it and throw themselves into it because when it was just a story, I wasn't invested in the story. I think it's important going into this movie to understand that its influences are both those Hollywood musicals of particularly the 40s and 50s, I would say, but also the French uh, musicals of the 60s, which is where that comes from. And for me, there is uh, something about this movie. I don't know that I necessarily disagree with you, Stephen, that the stuff in the middle, I think think the parts, the John Legend parts in the middle do drag. I think that part is sort of undercooked. I know why it's there. I think it's there because for Chazelle, any story about following your dreams in Hollywood has to include the temptation to sort of to go for a, you know, what's popular and where you can make money and kind of just have a job. So I understood why it was there. I agree that those parts are undercooked. Setting that aside, I believe that for me, the same way that in Hamilton, it really helps to have points of reference in both hip hop and rap and in Broadway musicals to have the full intention of the composer come to you. For me, it helps that I am a person who loves movie musicals. And so a lot of things in this movie are kind of programmed into my soul so that when I see Ryan Gosling in a suit lean against a lamppost in the kind of little dance number that they have, there is something that is programmed into me that kind of swoons at that. That's the kind of manipulation that I don't mind because it's done so beautifully. I think it's important to acknowledge 
this movie is gorgeous looking. Yeah. Uh, I struggled so much. This is a little story. When I wrote about this movie after Toronto, I struggled so much to describe what Emma Stone was wearing in this <laughs> movie. And I wound up saying every dress that she wears is like the peel of a bell. It's just this very <laughs> clear, gorgeous, simple, single tone. The clothes are gorgeous. The art direction is gorgeous. And the number that I'm talking about where he leans against the lamppost, if you've seen a lot of musicals, it is a song about how we are definitely not going to fall in love with each other, which is a classic, like, I'm not at all in love from the pajama game. And people will say we're in love from Oklahoma. And if I loved you from Carousel, those are all differently toned. But in this one, it's called uh, A Lovely Night. And I have a little clip of it. I'm frankly feeling nothing. Is that so? Or it could be less than nothing. Good to know, so you agree. That's right. What a waste of a lovely night. I love that song. I agree with Glenn. I would have put more songs in it. But the ones that they have, I think, are terrific. And I think they hold up as songs. And um, I have been saying for ages that the big Emma Stone number that she sings at this audition is going to be sung at many auditions and in many talent shows. (laughs) I think you're going to see the birth of 7,000 YouTube videos of very earnest young theater kids just selling the hell out of that song. And that makes me so happy. This movie for me does not always hold up in terms of story, although I think that ending is fantastic. Oh, I love the ending. But it so holds up for me as an experience that I that I forgive it a lot of flaws. And I do think that ending, I think without going into what it does, that ending really is about the fact that every relationship has a fantasy version of it mm-hmm. that you're always trying to get to and then a real version of it that happens in in your real life. And I think that's a very clever thing to incorporate into a musical, which is a fantasy kind of by definition, because nobody has an orchestra with them (laughs) when they're walking around. So I forgave it many flaws, but I understand that particularly that the whole John Legend thing I could have lived without. I I have to stand up for John Legend's role in this movie just in in one respect, which is that he he plays... He's this, you know, road dog musician who has a, you know, a major label deal and is able to coax uh, Ryan Gosling's character into what that particular jazz bro, you know, would see as a something of a debasement of the form. Mm-hmm. And we, we get to see this band play live. There's something very precise about what that band looked and sounded like. Yeah. <laughs> want to put across the idea that these people are 
definitely like pretty corny, definitely a little bit in it for the money, but they are just inexplicably wildly popular. Yeah. I like that a lot. But I don't even know that it's inexplicable. Like I got a sense watching that performance. Like, yeah, I absolutely know of gigantic crowds that would jam their asses off to the song that they put together there. They they did a nice job of recreating exactly what sound would be sort of objectionable to him and really popular to the world. Like, that I liked. I wasn't crazy about all the John Legend plot, but I liked that performance. Yeah, and one thing you mentioned to me right after the film, though, is that uh, in every band like that, there's the one guy you can tell doesn't want to be there. He's not into it. (laughs) There's a moment where you see Ryan Gosling is playing with his hand in his pocket, and it's it's, pretty perfect. Yeah. Two things, one within the movie and one completely without it. There's a long scene where they eat dinner and they argue, That feels completely natural. And it seems to me, A, I like the fact that they do this little um, characterization thing of Ryan Gosling where he's easily startled. (laughs) That keeps coming back in the film. And I also like that for that to work, for their chemistry to work, the dude has to be a jerk. And this Mm -hmm. was true in Whiplash, too. And I I kind of hope that uh, Chazelle kind of moves past that. The thing that's completely without the film is something that Jess really mentioned to me after the film, which is that great film, fine film. When it beats Moonlight, which it will, uh, it's going to break my damn heart. Because this film is about the romance of Los Angeles and the power of the movies. And they're just going to eat that up with a spoon. You can never go broke betting on the movie that says, Hollywood, you the real MVP. Mm. And like, it's got a little bit like, it's a little bit like The Artist, you know, where The Artist was kind of like, they don't make them like this anymore. I really like The Artist. But this has that same kind of like, look, it's a throwback. It, it is, the, it is a, and it's also like, if there's one thing Hollywood loves, it's Hollywood. Mm-hmm. I get that. I, I, I will say, I think one of the things I really appreciate about this movie in Oscar season and one of the things I really appreciate about its presence in the awards race is there are times when I feel like awards talk is almost allergic to things that are made with a specific intent to, among other things, evoke pleasure <laughs> uh, as viewing experiences. That. That's fair. I hear that. And there tends to be a real uh, desire to sort of say, over here are movies that give pleasure, over mm-hmm. here are movies that are important. Yeah. And I do think... For me, I always want there to be a film in which you can look at things like that lean on the lamppost, like those dresses she's wearing that have no function other than to give aesthetic, sensual pleasure to an audience. (laughs) That is a perfectly fine part of your artistic purpose. And for that reason, I'm very happy to have this movie kicking around. That's a very, very, very good point. And that's kind of what we were saying about Brooklyn last year. Like, oh my God, I'm so glad there's a movie that's like this. I I get that. Absolutely. And I hope that uh, lots of you will also see this one and also tell us what you think of this one on Facebook and Twitter. Come tell us what you thought about La La Land. When we come back, it's going to be time for our favorite segment of this week and every week, what is making us happy this week. So come right back. Support for Pop Culture Happy Hour comes from LearnVest. LearnVest is an online financial advice company focused on empowering people nationwide to make smart decisions with their money. If you want to know how aggressively to pay down your student loans, LearnVest can help with that. If you want to know how much you should put aside for saving or contributing to your retirement account, yep, they're on it. They'll create a custom financial plan. Plus, they pair you with a financial planner to help keep you on track. To see a sample plan and get a $50 credit, Go to learnvest.com slash happy. 
Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. It's time for our favorite segment, What is Making Us Happy This Week? Stephen Thompson, what is making you happy this week? My opinions about this movie are not to be trusted. I am biased. It is written by a friend of mine, but I did see The Founder, Mm -hmm. uh, which is coming out opposite Rogue One. I'm sure it'll do great. So The Founder stars Michael Keaton as Ray Kroc, who is seen by many as the founder of McDonald's. But of course, McDonald's is named for the McDonald brothers, these guys who ran a fast food place, kind of one of the first true fast food places out in California. And he has basically the idea to franchise them and take them across the country and worldwide and sort of turns a successful restaurant into a multi-godzillion dollar operation. And it raises these really interesting questions of, in, in effect, creative credit. I mean, you could apply some of the same story to the you know, to writing a movie or, or writing songs or, or whatever. Like, who gets credit for the great genius that made this massive success? And so my head has just been swimming with... Who actually deserves credit? Would McDonald's be a billion-dollar thing if these guys had been in charge of it? It's, it's a very interesting movie that I've been thinking a lot about. Thank you very much, Stephen Thompson. Glenn Weldon. Uh, the Secret History of Twin Peaks by Mark Frost is a book that's part, you know, fake dossier and history of the town and, uh, you know, uh, excerpts from Lewis and Clark's diaries and all this kind of stuff. It's, it's very layered. It's a very involving read. And I, I'm on record. I don't have a love-hate relationship with Twin Peaks. I have a love-love relationship with Twin Peaks. Even the second season. What, even Windham Earl? Yes, even Windham Earl. Even the Miss Twin Peaks contest? Yes. What about uh, what about the Leonard, Andy, and Lucy love triangle? Yes. So the Piper Laurie in Asian makeup where she's channeling Mickey Rooney in Breakfast at Tiffany's? No, no, not that. I bought the secret tapes of Agent Cooper. I bought the secret diary of Laura Palmer. I bought the travel guide to Twin Peaks. I, bought, I was subscribed to the Twin Peaks Gazette. This Mercy. is... Written by Mark Frost, who is half the brain behind Twin Peaks. And as we've touched on before, he is the logical brain. He is the grind. He's the one who wrote books about the Theosophist Society and uh, Madame Blavatsky. And he's all about doing the work to kind of bring in the Freemasons and UFOs. And he's the guy who's like, this is David Lynch. This is this is what we're doing. We're building this rich history. And David Lynch is the guy who goes, what about, it's all about cream corn. And then he has to go, well, I, sure, fine, fine. We'll, we'll work cream corn into this somehow. So if you are interested in Twin Peaks, this is not for the casual fan, but if you have any interest at all and you want the Mark Frost logical half and not the David Lynch, sometimes my arms bend back and that gum you like is going to come back in style. All that, uh, that's coming. That'll be when when it comes back next Mm -hmm. year. But this is a good primer to get back into the headspace for that series. Thank you very much, Glenn Weldon. Daoud Tyler Amin. So I wasn't here for the pop culture serotonin episode. So briefly, here are two things that have been keeping me sane lately. Number one, a video series called Carboys, and you will hear me struggle to explain it, but the ingredients are thus. Griffin McElroy, um, who some people know from his podcasts, uh, My Brother, My Brother and Me and The Adventure Zone. Uh, Nick Robinson, who's a producer at the video game website Polygon, where Griffin also works. And a car physics simulator called beamng.drive, which the point of it seems to be, as far as I can make out, to just see what happens when you crash certain kinds of cars into each other. (laughs) It is a soft body physics simulator. And basically, it's the two of them just playing this game, giving running commentary. They develop subplots. There's a crash test dummy who basically becomes their nemesis. It's so weird. 
But because it's those two guys, it's so funny. Um, and the stakes get higher and higher. They figure out that there's a cannon feature in the game, and they shoot cars with cannons. They figure out that you can change the gravity, and they say, what happens if we turn the gravity off and then turn it on, like, you know, to, like, Jupiter-style gravity? <laughs> I mean, it's funny, but it's also just like very incredibly relaxing right. uh, and satisfying. Very good. I've shouted out Monster Factory on the show before. Oh, very which good. Is, which is a variation on that theme. Exactly. And then the other one, a little bit of a throwback. I was reminded recently, I was having a conversation about the song You Don't Own Me, and I went to look for the Leslie Gore version. But right underneath it on YouTube was the scene from The First Wives Club, where the mm-hmm. three actors sing that song. Mm-hmm. and. I clicked through that clip and then another one and then another one and I was just after a while I just couldn't stop. I was a big fan of this movie when I was a kid, which I don't think I talked about terribly much, but I think it was like <laughs> the one year we had Cinemax, I think I taped it off yeah. of TV and just would watch it over and over again. But seeing it again now, I'm just astounded by how well it holds up and how well especially some of the dialogue when it really picks up and starts like overlapping, it's like almost like an old Howard Hawks movie. There's one scene that, you know, if you've seen this movie you remember uh, that's a pretty good representation I just spent the last 25 years with the most self-absorbed arrogant man on earth who is getting married to my therapist who I paid a fortune oh to lecture me on self-esteem huh oh, you God. win oh, and so. oh, well I am not gonna be that woman anymore you guys what has happened to us is unacceptable it is unacceptable you know I made all those stupid movies with that bill you know I gave him a career and he yeah. stole mine I worked behind the cash register in his first store in his mm. first 15 stores yeah well I gave Aaron a home and I gave him a daughter I washed his shorts I ironed into my starch them. Oh, you did? Yeah, well, I mean, I supervised. Oh. <laughs> so if you haven't seen it, I mean, it's right there in the title, but Goldie Hawn, Bette Midler, and Diane Keaton play three women, middle-aged women, whose husbands recently left them for much younger women, and the story centers on how they eventually decide to take revenge. And if you, you listen to that, and it's like directed, performed, and edited differently, that would be a much less funny scene. Yeah. But it's because they're so good at just mm-hmm. like keeping the pace and like yeah. jumping in and you know, and you hear little bits that land like after a joke is supposed to be over. There are some things that you'll look at and say like, oh, that's pretty 90s. Yeah. I think <laughs> somebody does actually say it's the 90s. Yeah. And there's a very 90s gay bar scene. But by and large, I just like, I can't believe how funny that movie still is. So yeah. if you haven't seen it in a minute or at all, First Wives Club, you might do yourself a favor. First Wives Club. That's a fun movie. Good call. Good pick there. It's funny to say that what is making me happy this week is something called The Hilarious World of Depression, but it's Mm -hmm. true. The Hilarious World of Depression is a brand new podcast from John Moe, who used to host the Mm. uh, show Wits. Mm -hmm. He is a he's out of the Minnesota public radio scene, so could not be more up my alley. And he is one of many people. I would include Rob Delaney and Ali Brosh and some other people, Jenny Lawson, who Mm -hmm. have really made an effort to talk about depression, to talk about the effects of it, to talk about mental illness in general, in public, in ways that are meant to sort of uh, help people feel less alone and a bunch of other things. And so he has this brand new podcast, The Hilarious World of Depression, which is intended to talk to mostly comedy people about their experiences with depression. And the first episode is called Peter Sagal Opens Up. And Peter has never talked about his history with depression before. And apparently what happened is they saw each other at a party or something. And Peter had heard that John was going to make this 
uh, show and came up to him and said, I want to do it. I want I'm in. I want to talk. I've never talked about it before. And Peter talks in this episode about essentially his divorce and the kind of implosion of some of his family stuff and how it aggravated a kind of an existing depression issue and how he sort of managed all of that. And he goes into kind of a lot of stuff about his life. I think they do a very good job in this show of staying out of the just kind of like beneath every person who makes you laugh is a dark history of blah, blah, blah. It's more it's more kind of pithy than that. It's a little bit more uh, substantive than than just that, uh, you know, laughter was my defense mechanism. Like there's a little bit of that. I really believe that for all of these people who are contributing to this kind of atmosphere of talking about this stuff more, it's so important because when you're dealing with depression, it's like if you had two broken ankles, you can't get yourself to the emergency room without somebody else helping because your broken ankles will keep you from getting there. And I think depression is the same way in that it works to inhibit you from fixing it. And so not only the more you educate people to believe when you have these thoughts, you can seek out help, but also when someone comes to you and tells you that they have these thoughts, you can be that person who encourages them to see a doctor, for example. So I think it's a public service. It's a really engaging show. I think, you know, everything John Moe does, I follow him on Twitter, and everything he kind of does and talks about is fun and interesting to me. Um, I was really psyched to hear this episode, and I'm excited to hear the next one is apparently Maria Bamford, mm-hmm. um, who's talked about these things before, but uh, I'm excited about this whole show. And it is making me happy, even though it has depression in the title. <laughs> so that is what is making me happy this week. And that brings us to the end of our show. You can follow all of us on Twitter. You can follow me at NPR Monkey C. You can follow Stephen at I Dislike Stephen. You can follow Daoud Tyler Amin at Art Sorority. You can follow our producer, Jessica Reedy, at Jessica underscore Reedy, and our producer, Emeritus and Music Director, Mike Katzif at Mike Katzif, K-A-T-Z-I-F. Mike's band, Hello, Come In, provides our in and out music, which you are tapping your foot to right now. So thanks to all of you guys for being here. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for listening, and we'll see you right back here next week. When you're ready for a break or just something new, find your NPR podcast at the NPR One app or visit npr.org slash podcasts. Revealing interviews on Fresh Air, The Big Listen, and Bullseye, New music from Alt Latino and All Songs Considered, and insights and analysis from Code Switch, NPR Politics Podcast, and Latino USA. Your new favorite thing on your own time is a click away at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app.